Welcome to Art Conversations, and I am your host, Lisa Jane Irvine. As a practicing visual artist, I've had the opportunity to meet many interesting individuals along the way. Every path I've ventured down has provided me with a greater knowledge in the arts, as well as a vast array of experiences that have helped to shape my practice both in and out of the studio. I encourage you to grab a cup of tea or even a coffee and settle in as we begin my conversations with my guests who are working, practicing, exploring, even playing in the arts. Michelle Harden is an Irish artist who works mainly in acrylic and water-soluble drawing materials. She has studied art at Fermanagh College in Northern Ireland, classical portraiture and figure painting, and drawing at the private art school and international arts colony Studio Escalier in France. Plein air painting with David Minette in Mallorca and is an alumni of the intensive creative visionary program with Nicholas Wilton, along with many years of self-experimentation. Her previous work has included a collection on the folklore and legends of her hometown Cavan and a large solo exhibition based on the fairy stories of Oscar Wilde, a book her grandmother gave her as a child. Her most recent exhibition was at the Start Art Fair in the renowned Saatchi Art Gallery in London and is now represented in the UK by Vash Blue Galleries. Michelle is very interested in creating interactive art buying experiences. Her first project of this kind, the Mystery Art Sale, was her pre-sell 37 paintings in 30 days on social media to collectors who bought without knowing what their paintings would look like. The Stop Painting Project handed the age-old question of when is a painting finished over to the art buyer through a constantly developing collection of 30 paintings that were painted over until they were all sold. These projects have encouraged her to seek out new creative fun ways to interact with art buyers. Please help me welcome Michelle Harton to the podcast. Good morning, Michelle. How are you? Good morning, Lisa. How are you? Oh, I'm so excited to have you here today. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) A little snowy in Canada, but I'm sure it's a lot nicer where you are right now. Yeah, we have the sun today, which is unusual. (laughs) We've no snow yet. Well, we could send some over. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we could start off with talking about these interactive art projects that you've been doing. Would you like to talk a little bit about the Mystery Art Project? Yeah, sure. The Mystery Art Project I was inspired to do by Andrea Kendall, who some people might know. She's an American artist and I saw her do the Mystery Art Project and she was so encouraging on her Instagram to people, telling people to try it. So basically what it is, is the way I did it was I told people I was going to paint 30 plus paintings and they could buy them in advance for a reduced rate, but they didn't know what they were getting. So I would paint the picture on the day and then I would post it onto Instagram and Facebook and whoever said they wanted it first, who had pre-bought, they got to have that piece of work. But it was fun because it kind of became like an auction almost daily on the website because then you could start to see people going, no, I wanted that one. And (laughs) you know, no, that was my one. And people were constantly watching my social media pages. I really like the interaction between myself and the buyer and to see which ones were getting the most attention. And in the end, they all sold out and I actually ended up getting commissioned for six more pieces after it. 
Excellent. Yeah, it was a little bit stressful at the time because I had set myself the challenge of actually creating the painting every day. So I guess the pressure was there to create something good every day because these people had already paid for a painting, you know, and I didn't want to give them something that wasn't something that I wanted to show. But I guess it was good to see that people responded really positively to all the work. Did you have a big following on social media at that point? No, I'd say it was less than 600 people probably at the time. I didn't have a big following. You use social media a lot. Has that grown over time as you've done these projects? Yeah, I think every time you do something like that, when you're posting daily and people are seeing you constantly and then they start to follow along with a project like that, like there was people who would when I would meet them on the street that I didn't think would be interested were saying, oh, I'm following along and I can't wait to see what's coming next. Even though they hadn't bought a painting, they were still really enjoying watching me. Like I would show little snippets of me creating the work during the day and then they'd wait for the painting to go on. But nobody knew what time the painting was going to be put up online. So that was another thing that people were kind of constantly checking back to see if I had put that day's painting up. Well, that makes the mystery even more fun. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was an absolutely genius idea of Andrea's. I probably will do it again. If I did it in the future, I think maybe I would have pre-done the work Mm -hmm. because it was just a little bit stressful to have to have work that was good enough every day. And then some days if I knew I had to do something the next day, I would have to make two paintings on the one day to try and make up for the next day's. Yeah, I definitely learned how to do it a bit easier (laughs) for the next time. What size were the paintings that you created? Oh, I think they were about five by seven inches. Okay. They weren't big, but I find that when I create a small painting, it could take me just as long as a bigger painting, you know, I guess because you're working on such a smaller scale and with smaller brushes and in more detail, it can take just as long. Yeah, I agree with that because I know I always tell my students that they should work bigger. It gives you a little bit more space and a little more freedom. Yeah, definitely. Like it's a nice challenge, you know, especially if you do work big a lot because I've been working big for so long. And at the minute I've kind of gone back to working on eight by six pieces. And I'm really enjoying the smaller pieces at the moment. Yeah, that's an interesting thought too, because I know as a painter myself, I always think I'm going to get a standard size and that's it. That's all I'm going to paint with. And then I get bored and I go back to either bigger or smaller. Yeah. Funny how that works. I know. I think it's like once you get out of your system that you want to work really big, you just like the change of something small. I would tend to work on either a lot of small ones or a lot of big ones at a time. I usually probably wouldn't have just one big one and then one small one or or something like that. I find it easier to stay on the same size for a little bit. But I do bounce between like on the same day, I could have a lot of big paintings on the wall and then a lot of small paintings on the wall and then sometimes one will influence the other or give me an idea of what will work on on the other painting. And you also did the stop painting project. Can you talk about that? Again, this was another social media interactive art project. I had tried to think then what could I do the year after the mystery art sale to make it a little bit different. So I tend to show my processor when I'm working on a painting on Instagram. A lot of times when I'm kind of halfway through a painting or even sometimes at the beginning, people will send me messages and just say, stop, don't do any more on that painting. And then that would make me really confused because obviously you have an idea of what you want to do. And that made me start thinking like, am I doing too much on the work? Am I overworking it? And then I thought, okay, I'm going to do this experiment and that people, they do have the chance to tell me to stop if they want to buy the painting at that 
stage. So again, I pre-sold 30 paintings and that every day I would post like how much I had done on different paintings. And at any stage, people could tell me to stop painting and bought that painting. So they were all eight by eight inches on kind of cradle wooden panels. And what happened with that was it was interesting because there was a lot of early stages that I would have thought, you know, I would have continued to work on for hours or days normally. And people were like, no, I want it in that kind of raw form. That's mm-hmm. the way I like it. So that was really interesting. And I guess that gave me a little bit of permission to feel like when I like those beginning pieces, maybe there are other people that do too. Mm-hmm. But I know sometimes I feel like, oh, I haven't done enough work on this. It got to a stage I really liked too fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's, it's that feel like you have to work really hard for it, which is, I guess, silly as well if you can do it in half the time. Remember, you've got years of experience now too, though, right? <laughs> I guess. I think there's that old story about Picasso, you know, when he, he drew something like scribble on a napkin and then said it cost thousands and people said, but it's just on a napkin. But he said it was all the years before that that helped him be able to do that in a few minutes. Yeah. That was one interesting thing. And then the other thing that it really taught me was there was paintings that I really liked and nobody claimed them. Nobody stopped them. And then so I had to paint over them. It really helped me to be less precious about my work. That must Um, be hard, though, when you see a layer and you're like, oh, I like that. (laughs) Yeah, they were completely finished paintings. I mean, they were totally finished and there was no way I could alter them anymore without turning them into a different painting. So it just made me be like, okay, well, you know, I'd paint over it. And then if I painted a better painting, it was really a lesson in, okay, you can do something else or you can always make it better. I learned a lot from that project. It went on over the space of like, I guess, a couple of months because I was painting so many. There was 30 paintings and all. Some days I would just do a little bit on the painting. But at the minute, I'm trying to think of what I could do for another project. Well, I know this is the painting project where I first came across you online. So okay. I don't remember what I was looking for or doing, but I somehow discovered your project. And I was like, this is so fascinating. What a great idea. But when you were telling me about the stress of it, I was like, oh, yeah, I never thought about that side. <laughs> yeah, I think what it showed me was it was better, like I had done the first time with the mystery art sales, that I had a deadline because with this one, there was no deadline. Mm -hmm. And so it just kind of went on, like I said at the beginning, I'll finish when the 30 of them are sold. And then most of them sold quite quickly over the months. Like what I started at the beginning, I was doing it every single day. And then I had other commitments for exhibition work that I needed to finish. So I just start doing it one day a week on a Wednesday. So that kind of dragged it out a lot longer than I had intended to at the beginning. But yeah, it was a good lesson. I think maybe for those kind of projects, it's good to have a deadline. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind if I ever decide to do something like this. Yeah, you should <laughs> you know, try it. I mean, they're fun. <laughs> my inspiration for it, for sure. I thought we could also just talk a little bit about where you started. Some of your work has talked about folklore and Irish folklore in particular. Can we go back to your very first exhibition called The Hollow? Yeah, sure. So The Hollow came from Cavan is where I'm from in Ireland. And The Hollow is what Cavan means in Irish. It's a county full of drumlins. It's very hilly and it goes down into hollows. And I just always loved like these stories of ghost stories and Irish legends and things like cures. Like in Ireland, we have this person has the cure of the sprain that you would go to them where this person has a cure of colic or there's different people who have these different 
cures. So myself and my friend Jackie O'Neill, she's another Irish artist and she's also from Cavan and she tends to work in textile and illustration. And we had said we'd love to do an exhibition sometime together. We had spoke then about folklore and then we decided, okay, let's do this. So we spent six months going around to different people that we knew that we researched would know stories. We did a lot of research through the library and Anyone who would tell us a story, we collected the local folklores and legends, and then we both picked our favorites out of it. And we created a whole exhibition based on all these different stories of where we were from. And like in every town in Ireland, we'll have different folklore and legends. And then there's some of them seem to be intertwined. A similar story will pop up in a different town, but with a few details changed. What we found about Irish folklore, and I think this probably is the same all over the world is they never have happy endings. <laughs> they all end very sadly and they're all quite dark. I've talked to different people in different countries and they said their own folklore is the same. I love that kind of mystery and these stories that are passed down and where they came from. And like there was one at the back of my home house in Cavan, there's a lake. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing the exhibition, I said to my mother, like, what was that story that you had told me about the lake, that there was this ghost boy, he drowned there and that you could see him around the lake. And she said, Usher, I only told you that because I was afraid that you would go down to the lake and something would happen to you and it was just to frighten you so you'd stay away from it. And I believed that for my whole life. What that made me think was this is where a lot of these kind of folklore and legends came from as well. They were to protect people and You know, like in Ireland, we have so many stories about you don't damage the fairy forts in Ireland or you don't build on the fairy forts, which would be these kind of stone rings that would be in Ireland and all these different historical kind of stone buildings and tombs that we would have in Ireland. Like there's a lot of folklore that surrounds them, but because of that, they've been protected. But there's so many of the stories that we had that most people didn't know. So we had all the stories with the painting. So it was lovely in the town to see people come in and read those stories and then that they would pass them on to their families. And we did a lot of talks for all the different schools in the area who came in. So we hope that the children will carry these stories on as well. I'm very interested in that and bringing stories from the past to the future to be kind of reshared and passed on. I can relate to that because I remember as a kid going over to Ireland and the fairy rings, I'm talking about the fairy rings and being a kid with a great imagination. I had all sorts of stories dancing in my head about what they were and what the fairies looked like. And my parents were overwhelmed with how (laughs) imaginative I was. It does conjure up a lot of imagery when you think about these things. And there's a lot of elderly people in Ireland and they would be very stern and not believe in anything too mystical, but they still have unbelievable respect and definitely a fear of messing with those kind of monuments. I find that really interesting that that kind of magic is still there with these stories. Years and years and centuries later, right? (laughs) Yeah, that people still have that belief, okay, you just don't know, so we better be careful (laughs) and respect it. (laughs) And does that folklore and that mystery still play into your current work? I think it's always there. The moment my work is an ongoing series of, I call them mystical abstracted landscapes. I like to think of them of that they're worlds that people can step into and I want people to be able to walk around inside them in their mind and that they're places that you could meditate on them. And 
if you had any worries or stress that you go inside the piece and you leave it there. It was only recently I was actually thinking of, you know, that scene in Mary Poppins in the movie where Bert draws the landscape on the ground and they all jump into the painting. I was starting to think like, I think that's what I've been trying to create all this time. That scene was almost my favorite scene in Mary Poppins. And I think I've always wanted to jump into the painting, to be able to escape into these secret places. So I think that's definitely what's happening in my work and in my landscapes now. Some of the landscapes, they're two-sided. So you can turn them upside down and there's another landscape appears. I call it the land of Gemini. My sign is Gemini, but Gemini is also the sign of duality. So it was the twins. So it's that two sides of a place, the night and day of a place, how it looks in different light, but two scenes that can be in one. So yeah, I guess the mystery and the magic, I'm always trying to unveil the mystery and the magic in something. And I suppose I work in a very intuitive way. I don't start with any kind of a plan. I start extremely abstractly. And then the process totally guides me. If I see a figure in there, whatever I see in the painting is what I start to develop. So I always feel like there's a little bit of magic in that too, that there's a conversation there with an entity or something in the painting that I don't know. I'm always like, I'm completely fascinated by anything weird or wonderful. So yeah, I guess it's just normal that it would show up in the work. I love that you can actually turn the paintings both ways. So that when you're providing them to your buyer, do you let the buyer decide which way it goes or do you wire them so they can hang? I wire them on two sides so that they can hang them. Either way, they can decide. I guess the idea was that if people wanted to change, they could just turn it upside down. I was just thinking in my head, that's fantastic because... Can you imagine, well, I just need something to change and you just flip your painting over. What a great... Yeah, a lot of people with my paintings over time, they start to see more and more things in them and I tend to hide little things in them as well. And I like that idea that the longer you're looking at a piece, you don't get tired of it or you haven't seen everything. You start to go, oh, I hadn't seen that before. And then I guess that's the extra option that you can turn it upside down. I did do it a few years ago with figures and I always intended to get back to it. So I guess they were like a playing card, the two sides of a person. So that's something I would like to develop again in the future is to bring it more figurative. Oh, that'd be interesting. That'd be fun to play with too. Now I'm imagining like turning your paintings around. Yeah, you kind of have to just keep turning it around so that it works as one painting. And then like most people wouldn't know to look at it. It's a two-sided painting. It's only really when you tell them. I kind of stopped for a little bit because... It's quite hard work, to be honest, when you're constantly trying to figure it out. It's like really piecing a jigsaw puzzle together to make it work. And they do take quite a long time to make them two-sided, but it's lovely when they work out. (laughs) We had talked earlier about one of my inspirations, Lila Lewis Irving, who does abstract work. And I've taken courses with her as well. She had always said a really good abstract work should work from all four sides. So I find it interesting that you're playing with that too, because it is about the design and the composition and how the work feels to the audience, right? Oh, definitely. I guess it's something I always did. I do always turn a painting upside down and from different sides to see that it works. Because it's only sometimes when you turn it upside down or you look at it in the mirror, you can see what needs to change or you've got too many shapes that are the same size. You need that step back for a minute. And when you get stuck into a piece, I know I do all the time myself, like I don't stand back from it. I really have to be quite 
disciplined about and remember to tell myself, okay, you need to step away from this for a while or go out, make a cup of tea and come back. And then suddenly your eyes feel a little bit fresher to look at it. It's hard though, when you're in the midst of really good work. (laughs) Yeah, I know sometimes, yeah, when you have it, you just need to keep going. Definitely. I think it's a good thing for all artists to do is to turn your work around. And I guess it happened actually with this one. I had no intention of this one being a two-sided painting. Mm-hmm. And I guess I just put it somewhere and I had hung it upside down. Then I was like, it had actually on its own worked as a night scene when it was turned upside down. Oh, that's neat. You've also had some interesting training. You got to paint in France for a little while. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So I really wanted to get better. This is a good few years ago now. I really wanted to learn how to do portraiture properly and to paint figures properly. I was finding it really hard to get that training on a more intense basis in Ireland. So actually, I had looked up all these different figurative portraiture artists that I loved. And the one thing that I noticed about most of them was that they were all trained by Ted Set Jacobs. I was like, wow, who is this man? I want to go train with him. All these people are getting so good. So I found Ted's email and I wrote to Ted and then me and Ted became good friends through email. And Ted had stopped teaching really at that stage. But he said, there's two of my students and they're a couple and they run an art school not too far from where I live. And it was Studio Escalier. So I ended up studying first in Studio Escalier. I had gone for uh, about three weeks or so just to do portraiture. And it's a wonderful course. Like it's very intense and you've got so much painting time with a model every day. And then after that, I had enjoyed it so much. I went back then again for about six weeks, another year to do figurative. So figurative drawing and figurative painting. But I mean, it's incredible to have a model from the morning to the evening and then have the amazing teaching skills of Tim and Michelle, the couple who run the school there. They also run an amazing program in Paris too. And I got to go meet Ted when I was in France too, who is just an absolute legend of a painter. And sadly, he passed away not that long ago, but he really set me on a journey to improve my skills and to end up meeting amazing painters, wonderful artists, both times that I I went to the school in France. I suppose I felt I always needed to have those skills. And I guess I started to go a little bit more abstract afterwards because it was like I wanted to know the rules so I could break them, (laughs) (laughs) if that made any sense. But I do bring the portraiture in, like I, I brought it in a lot, I guess, into the Oscar Wilde. They might have more abstracted backgrounds. I've always really wanted to have maybe things like realistic hands or realistic faces or realistic animals and then have the rest of the painting more abstract. I guess they're called it kind of deconstructed realism at the moment, I think. <laughs> to be yeah. the, the term. But I, yeah, the term. But I really like that type of painting. But I think it's really good to know how to paint, to know the basics of color mixing and drawing and your observational skills before. Maybe I know there's people who probably wouldn't agree with this, but I definitely think it does make your abstracted work stronger. Yeah, I would agree with you for sure. You've said that you've brought that into your Oscar Wilde series. So was that right after this then? Yeah, I'm trying to think of the years. It would have been a while afterwards. I did the Oscar Wilde series. It would have been a few years after I did it around 2019, the Oscar Wilde series. 
But because I had those skills, I was able to do the work that I want. I think that's before I went to Studio Escali, I was quite frustrated because I was trying to do more realistic things. And I felt like I just didn't have the skills. I just didn't know how to mix the colors. It just felt really, really, really hard. And it is hard. <laughs> Portraiture and drawing is hard. But with practice and knowing the right skills and the right way to shape a face and, and turn angles, it really helps to know these tips. And I had tried to learn through videos for a while, but I really needed that help of somebody right beside me that I could ask questions to. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your Oscar Wilde series, describe it to the audience and what it's like. The Oscar Wilde series was based on the fairy stories of Oscar Wilde, which was a book of short fairy stories that Oscar Wilde had written for his two sons. My grandmother gave me this book when I was a child and I absolutely loved it. But when I was a child, I read them as fairy stories like anybody. I do remember thinking that they didn't end how you'd want them to end when I was a child. But I always kept this book and it was something on my mind for years when I was painting more that I'd love to do, you know, an exhibition based on it. So I started reading the book again and I would keep a little notebook with me and any kind of passage or lines that stood out, I would write them down. And I applied for a couple of different places where I could do an exhibition and for different grants and things to run it. And I ended up then getting a grant from the library in Cavan. They wanted to have the exhibition there for Culture Night. I don't know if you have Culture Night in Toronto, but here in Ireland, it's a huge thing every year. It's like they have loads of anything to do with culture, art, music, theatre, any kind of dance. So different venues have these very big events and it becomes like a walking tour of every town you can go around and there's like a whole night or whole weekend of all wonderful kind of arts events. So they asked me, would I put this exhibition on and put it together for Culture Night? And then that they also had after that a children's book festival month and they'd like to have the exhibition there for the month after. So then I was like, okay, now I have to do this. (laughs) You know, they're going to help support me with this. And so I picked out my favorite stories and I worked for months and months and months to do this exhibition. I worked in a tiny, tiny little box room and some of the pieces were very large. They're like over six foot kind of size paintings. So I created 22 paintings based on stories, which was like my largest collection. And it was my first solo exhibition. If anybody does want to see the exhibition, there's actually some YouTube videos on it. The title, A House of Pomegranates, that's what all the stories were published together as Oscar Wilde kind of described it as the pomegranate, the little seeds inside it. They were like the little stories inside the house of the pomegranate. So it really was something that I don't know why it always kind of pulled at me. Like the stories, they're so sad. There's so many morals trapped inside these very childlike stories. And I guess that's what I wanted to do with the paintings. So Mm -hmm. I guess I've used quite childlike imagery in some of the paintings, but I mean, there's quite a lot of strong morals trapped inside them. They're very dark. There's some very dark kind of stories in it, but I tried to wrap them up to look like a picture that a child would like. That was a house of pomegranates. I love that it connects with your grandmother and your history and these stories that you would have read as a child, but then you were presenting them to children. Yeah, like the children seem to love them. Like I opened up for schools to come into and Obviously, they had it there for the Children's Book Festival month too. So they had a lot of different authors who came in and who saw the work and read their own stories in front of the work. And then some of the children in the schools, they created their own paintings based on the stories. 
my sister actually is a primary school teacher and she brought her class in and they all created paintings based on my paintings and the stories. And they gave me all the paintings afterwards and they wrote me all notes on the back end of what they had thought of the stories. And that for me was, that was the highlight of it. It was amazing to see that these children had been influenced and the work that they had done was... Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it was lovely. You've also recently showed at the Start Art Fair in London. What was that like and how did you get to be there? Oh, so, well, I think it was a moment of madness. <laughs> I actually applied just after I finished the House of Pomegranates. Then I did the Mystery Art Sale Challenge that time as well. And I was just feeling like I was on this work role and I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to apply for something bigger. And I applied for the Star Art Fair. To be honest, I didn't think I'd get selected to show there. I mean, the Sashi Gallery is such a world famous gallery. And they selected my work to be shown there. It's kind of a curated art fair. And I actually was meant to do it last year. Mm -hmm. And then because of COVID, obviously, it was just I couldn't travel at the time. So I ended up doing it this year in September. It was great to show. It's a big expense to show at any of these fairs. It's a huge expense. And Brexit has made it even more difficult. It's even more expensive with all the different customs and taxes you have to pay to bring artwork in and out of the UK. So I showed like a new collection of all the landscapes and some of the two-sided landscapes. And I brought along three of the larger Oscar Wilde pieces there as well. It was great to get my work seen by such a big audience there. And I met some incredibly talented artists, absolutely amazing artists from all over the world. But the best thing that came out of it for me was that I met Vash Blue Galleries there, that they saw my work and they said they didn't have anything like it in their gallery in St. Albans. And they invited me to come and have my work in their gallery. And they also offered me a publishing contract for prints. I actually was just in the UK last weekend to sign my prints there. So that was really the best thing that came out of the exhibition there. So I suppose pushing myself to show myself on a bigger stage, it's scary. And obviously the expense of it is very scary. And there's very little grants around. I don't know what it's like in Canada, but in Ireland, if you do an art fair, there's very little funding for that kind of thing. It's deemed as being too commercial, which personally I don't understand because I think if an artist is trying to push their career, it seems like the right thing to try and fund. But I definitely think it's made me not scared of doing those bigger, pushing myself, I guess, a little bit further. That's great. Congratulations on getting the representation and the prints. That's very exciting. Thank you, Steve and Alicia, who own the gallery. They've been so kind to work with. It really feels like we're a team. I really like that. That's great. You mentioned about how this was supposed to happen during COVID. And obviously, COVID has changed a lot for a lot of us and continues to evolve. How has the whole shutdown and COVID impacted you as an artist? Well, in 2020, when it first happened, to be honest, I really enjoyed it. I really liked not having to go anywhere. And I liked that I solely had that time and I probably did more paintings than I've ever done. What I also did that year was I signed up for Nicholas Wilton's Creative Visionary Program, which is just like almost four months really of kind of intensive art training and coaching and mentoring. And so that I felt like it made me much more productive. 
And I felt that the training made me much better able to figure out if there was problems in the work and how to fix it instead of spending hours trying to stare at something <laughs> or just leaving paintings for months. So yeah, I felt like that was the best thing I did was that I invested in training and used that time to be more productive. That's great. And I thought as we wrap up, I usually ask my guests to tell us about a book or something that inspires them. More recently, people have been telling me about other artists that they find so inspirational. So I'll give you the choice. Would you like to talk about a book or an artist or both? I'll probably pick a book because there's so many artists that I absolutely love. Like for inspiration, I find it's not actually the work. It's more, I suppose you probably heard with me, it's stories or kind of nearly more somebody's life that would actually inspire me more because I feel like that kind of pushes me on to think, oh, well, maybe I could do that. Yeah, and there's way too many artists. To do. <laughs> I completely understand. Yeah. I'm somebody who could never get a tattoo because I'd be constantly changing my mind and I'd always see something better and I'd want that. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite book, my favorite art book is a book about Susan Seddon Boulay. It was a retrospective of her life by Michael Babcock. And it's a very large book, but I just, I suppose, going back to my love of mystical things and spiritual things, I just find her work amazing. And her life story is incredible as well. And I mean, sadly, she died extremely young as well. But I mean, her work is still published all the time and it just shows she's still making an impact. I have a huge amount of art books that I absolutely love. I suppose probably my second favorite book is probably Joan Ardley. It's one by Fiona Pearson, another incredible artist who also sadly died very young in her 40s of cancer and has made a huge impact. The book as well is her life story and the beautiful paintings in it that she created. I could probably go on all day about art books. I have a terrible addiction to buying art books. Yeah, I can relate. I keep thinking, well, if I just get one more, it's okay. I know. At the moment, I've been dipping in that nearly for the last year into Brian Ruttenberg's A Little Long Time. Oh, I um, have that one. It's a good yeah, one. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I love his videos. I actually only discovered him about two years ago through the Art Juice podcast mm -hmm. when he was on there. And I had never seen his work before. And I suppose like me, he uses really bright colors as well in landscape. So I was really attracted to his work and his videos, his thoughts about art and life that he creates on YouTube are really interesting. So the book was lovely because I guess it's a compilation of all those stories plus his work and, and lots of extra, I guess, thoughts about being an artist. I've given you three there. I that's, that's okay. <laughs> three is good. There's never too many when it comes to art and artists. And <laughs> And so it's always inspiring. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. And it's been really fun listening about your process and how you paint and what inspires you. Oh, well, thank you. I hope I haven't waffled on too long. <laughs> I tend to talk too much. Thank you so much for asking me to be on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been exciting. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Art Conversations with Lisa Jane Irvine. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and hit the like button. And don't forget to check out my website, Facebook, and Instagram accounts. Thank you for listening. See you next time.